Now that we have finished the rich teaching found in the letter to the Philippians, today we're embarking on a new series on selected psalms. So let's pray first as we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to continue to worship you this morning. We ask through your Holy Spirit that you would fill us with understanding, that we would comprehend what your text says, and that you would lead us, Lord, to worship you and to trust you as we move along in the days that are ahead. In your name, Jesus, we do pray. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, writes that the Psalms are poems of worship and praise offered to God that are often intended to be sung. They are the scriptural catalog of praise for Israel and later for the church. While their primary purpose is not to teach doctrine or theology, doctrine and theology form the foundation of these songs of hymns and worship. The Psalms seek to provide a body for the emotions. They offer God-inspired ways to express the inaudible, heartfelt cries of prayer and lament, even anger and joy as the life of faith progresses through a sinful world. We hear God's voice in every psalm as expressions of the dialogical relationship between God and his children. Harrison helpfully offers, the psalms can therefore be said in general to comprise a divine word spoken in rather than to people. It is this record of personal and honest experience with God that continues to draw believers to the Psalms. Intensely personal and yet widely familiar, these prayers are our heritage and our example of ways to approach God within the mystery of his character while holding to the faith that he grants to each of us. Singing praises to God, praying, giving, serving, hearing and living God's word are all avenues through which we worship and experience God. For some of us, the Psalms speak to your very heart. They resonate within you as they give form to what you feel, as they express your thoughts and emotions, even when you struggle to find the right words. Still, for others of us, the Psalms speak to our minds as we wander along unfamiliar pathways that carry us before our Lord. In these worship songs, we see God giving us permission to cry out to him in both anguish and joy. We see through psalmic transparency as the writers struggle with the timeless issues of injustice, suffering, loneliness, anger, depression, as well as praise, worship, love, and joy. So in this sermon series on the Psalms, you are invited to step into the stream of God's worship poems, to let the words and emotions wash over you as you feel and experience God's presence in all that you are facing today and will face in days to come. 
Now, our first psalm in the series is Psalm 5, which tradition attributes to King David. Now, before we do anything else, let us read aloud together this psalm. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy, and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Amen. Now, as we approach this psalm, we can summarize how David expresses himself in this way. You will notice that there are five strophes or sections to this poem. Three sections, verses 1 to 3, 7 to 8, and 11 to 12, are turning toward the Lord. And these three sections alternate with two sections that denounce the enemy in verses 4 to 6 and verses 9 to 10. So the entire psalm expresses the spirit of the cry in verse 2, where David lifts his voice before my King and my God. We can further uh, unfold the psalm by noticing that in the first section, David expresses his deep desire that the Lord Yahweh give ear to my words. In verses 4 to 6, we hear the acknowledgement of Yahweh's abhorrence and judgment of the wicked, who are not permitted to enter his house, that is, enter into his presence. David then petitions to be granted entry into your temple, in verses 7 to 8, based solely upon God's abundant and steadfast love. To ensure that no one would enter this sacred space under false pretenses, we next hear in verses 9 to 10, the wicked indicted and a petition that the Lord Yahweh pass the guilty, guilty verdict and banish them as their punishment. Finally, in verses 11 to 12, we hear the petition and hope that those who love your name may have access to and enjoy the privileges of the temple. 
namely refuge, blessing, and praise in his presence. So let's see how David calls upon God to lead him in God's righteousness, even as David's opponents offer temptations to stray from God's path. Now, the psalm uh, does not provide any specific context for David's anguish. We don't know the reason why David wrote this psalm. We can well imagine uh, the fear and despair a young David experienced when Saul sought to malign David and kill him in 1 Samuel 19. We can also imagine the deep pain David experienced when he needed to flee for his life when his oldest son Absalom seized the throne in 2 Samuel 15, which, by the way, is the context for Psalm 3. Perhaps God, even in his wisdom, is inviting us to enter into David's pain not as spectators to passively watch, but as participants, as we learn from David how we can come before our Lord with our anguish and pain because of our enemies. In his intense need, what is the first thing that David does? Well, he reaches out to the Lord in verses 1 to 3. David begins directly with his petition to be heard. You can almost hear his anguish as he calls upon the Lord in verse 1. Give ear to my Lord, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give ear to my words is a, is a plea for God to listen to what is being said. Give ear to my groaning is a plea for God to hear David's emotions. Sometimes our need is too deep for words, where we cannot even begin to describe how we feel. And David says, O Lord, consider my groaning. In this case, a groan is a deep, inarticulate sound conveying pain or despair. We know that God is familiar with such emotions in the context of prayer. Paul tells us in Romans 8.26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with what? With groanings too deep for words. God understands our hearts and needs even when we cannot express them. God knew David so deeply that David could bring his words and his emotions before the Lord with the hope that God would hear. And so David continues in verse 2, where he says, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Give attention. David repeats this petition, moving from calling for the Lord to hear him to asking the Lord to turn to him and pay attention. You know, we can listen to someone without looking at them. And it can be irritating if you're talking to someone and they're saying, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, that's fine, without looking at you. So we say, are you listening to me? Look at me when I talk to you. So David, in a much more humble way, says, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. In other words, turn, O Lord, and see my pain. Look at me. 
Notice David includes the phrase, my king and my God. He's reaching out to the personal, covenant-forming God. This is not a, a cry in the darkness to an unknown deity, but to the God of Israel, who David knows will hear. David was himself a king, responsible for God's covenant people. But David confesses that he is under the king, and so submits himself before God in his request for attention. And he goes on in verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. You know, in the morning is when the light of day first appears. Craig Broyles uh, offers uh, that possibly morning refers to the first light, which overcomes the darkness of night, symbolizing salvation, newness, and hope. It is the opportune time for God to hear the petitioner's voice. So David says, in the morning, you hear my voice. David begins his day seeking the Lord. In faith, he moves from his request to be heard to the anticipation that God will and does hear his voice. A second time, he says, in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Here he describes how he is approaching the Lord. I think the Hebrew just says, in the morning, I prepare. And so translators have chosen to insert an object for repair. For example, the NIV transla translates it as, uh, I lay my requests before you. The NESV chooses, I order my prayer to you. While the ESV has it, I prepare a sacrifice for you. Alan Ross, in his commentary, tells us that the word prepare is used in the law for laying out wood on an altar in preparation for sacrifice. And such sacrifices are accompanied with prayer. Kidner also adds that in the morning suggests that David is referring to the daily sacrifice, which supports the ESV translation. In the morning, you hear my voice, David says. As I prepare a sacrifice for you at the temple or sanctuary, where such sacrifices are, be, are to be offered, accompanied with prayer. So after David prepares a sacrifice and prays to the Lord, what does he do next? He waits. He waits expectantly for God's response. I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. Now, watch means waiting expectantly for an answer. Browse again offers that waiting shows that worshipers, this is important, that worshipers cannot presume God's favorable hearing. Waiting shows patient anticipation in the confidence and assurance that God hears. As in keeping a, a vigil, as one waits for an answer. So David has presented himself before the Lord, and he has approached God in sacrifice and prayer, and then waits upon the Lord's pleasure to answer. Let me ask you, when serious need arises in your life, what is the first thing that you do? Is your first thought to call on God or to try and solve things yourself? 
We need to train ourselves to be ever before God praying, seeking, and waiting for him. And notice that David did not just cry out and pray, but in verse 3 he worshipped God. Even if the Lord tarried in reply, or even if he did not give a reply, we still worship. We still lean on God because he is working out his will in many times in ways we cannot discern. After all, at times we can hardly understand ourselves, let alone God. We also know from David that God hears and answers. So we submit before God as we seek his peace. Reaching out means critically that God does hear and he does call us to seek him. So we can submit to his peace, which we just recently encountered in Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7, which says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So as David has poured out his, his heart in prayer and worship, he knows that the Lord doesn't hear or admit just anyone into his presence. In verses 4 to 6, David now recount, recounts for us those whom God admits into his presence. Who's allowed to come before God? In verses 4 to 6, David reflects that the nature of God permits no evil to dwell in his presence. Brawls again tells us, The Lord is characterized and praised through a description of the kind of company he does not tolerate. Verse 4 reads, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Now, wickedness is a quality of being evil or morally wrong. And such evil cannot dwell with God. This is intensely personal. Hence the words dwell with you. Evil and those who practice evil have no place with God. They cannot be with him. And in verse 5, David amplifies this further, where he says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Now the boastful are those who show excessive pride and self-satisfaction in their achievements, possessions, and abilities. And the boastful cannot even stand before his eyes, let alone dwell with God. And David continues saying, you, that is God, hate all evildoers. Now, let's say a word about hate that's used here. We often talk about God's love. But sin and evil are so detestable that God's word says he hates evil and those who do evil. It is important to understand that hate does not refer to any kind of emotion that God has towards someone, as in, I hate you. Rather, when the Bible says God hates something, it means that he stands covenantly opposed to it. He stands with a drawn sword in the way of sin. He does not accept it. To hate all those who do wrong or evildoers is to stand against all those who oppose, who oppose God's righteous reign and rule in the world. 
Not only uh, are evildoers, evil itself, and the boastful barred from God's presence, it becomes even more specific and intense in verse 6. David says, You, O God, destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God destroys those who speak lies. In other words, liars. Lying is a habitual practice of willful disregard for truth. Liars are not only banned from his presence, but they are completely removed and destroyed. So we learn here that God takes truth-telling seriously. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. To abhor means to regard something with disgust and hatred. The bloodthirsty means those who are eager to shed blood. You see, while liars attempt to destroy a reputation, the bloodthirsty seek to destroy a life. And in both cases, God's response is disgust and hatred. The deceitful are guilty of purposely misleading others despite knowing the truth. The deceitful make the choice to hide the truth by replacing it with lies. Now, since this is a description of those who cannot come into God's presence, we can uh, turn these characteristics around and state them in a more positive way. Who does the Lord accept into his presence? Well, the Lord delights in goodness, not wickedness. Good dwells with God, not evil. The humble shall stand before God's eyes, not the boastful. God loves doers of good, not evildoers. God builds or establishes those who speak truth, but destroys liars. The Lord adores those who are kind and honest, but abhors the violent and deceiver. Broyles summarizes this section by saying, Entering the Lord's presence is a deeply personal experience. It is not a product, a product of uh, performing right rituals or duties or saying the right things, but rather being the right person. Being the right person is what brings us into God's presence. Now given that, what hope does David have of God even listening letting alone answering his cries in verses 1 to 3. Neither David, David, or um, any person qualifies to be admitted to God's presence. Who among us has never lied, boasted, or deceived another? All of us are born into sin, and yet David in verses 7 to 8 will state his case for being allowed into the Lord's presence to deliver his petition. You see, David begins by reaching out to the Lord, knowing that the Lord does not receive evildoers. Why then can David even hope that the Lord will hear his cries? It's because the request of David is offered within the Lord's mercy. Verses 7 to 8 read this way. But I, that is David, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Note that uh, 
It's the mercy of God that permits David to approach the Lord. David uh, does not contrast himself with evildoers. He does not lay out a, a list of righteous acts as a reason for acceptance from God. He simply declares that he is accepted into God's presence because of God's love, which is available to anyone who trusts in the Lord. So here David in verse 7 is describing his acceptance as based upon the abundance of God's steadfast love, or chesed. Abundance means inexhaustible. Steadfast means it never wavers or changes. So David is accepted due to the inexhaustible and never changing love of God. Now I know if we were meeting in church right now, someone would have shouted, Amen. So if you're at home watching this, go ahead and say, Amen, to God's abundant and steadfast love. Only those loved by God are permitted to draw near to Him. Only those loved by God are permitted to draw near to Him. In fact, the healed blind beggar lectured the Pharisees in John 9.31 with these very words. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. This is the covenant established by God with his people. They are permitted to enter God's house where he dwells and to worship him. So in response to God's mercy, David now worships God in the second half of verse 7, where he says, I will bow down towards your holy temple in fear of you. David offers submission and thanksgiving before God. This is a, um, a physical act reflecting the spirit of the worshiper. Remember, our faith is not only expressed in words or song, but also expressed in our actions. He bows in fear or reverence before the Lord. As David enters the temple, prepares his sacrifice and covenant with the Lord, he now bends the knee and heart before God. Now David could have never imagined the temple or sanctuary to which he entered would be fulfilled in the Messiah. We know the true temple of God is in the Messiah. In the New Covenant, we enter the temple who is the Christ, where Christ has become our sacrifice and in whom we dwell with the Lord Yahweh. In John chapter 2, Jesus reveals that he is a temple. John 2.18 begins, So the Jews said to him, that is said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build the temple, and he will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Our entrance before God's presence is described in Christ in two related ways. Christ for you, our justification, and second, Christ in you, our sanctification. Christ for you. Christ's death in our place takes away the stain of verses 4 and 6 of Psalm 5. It takes away our arrogance, our violence, our deceit, 
our wickedness, and our very nature of sin is destroyed. Hallelujah! What a, what a demonstration of God's steadfast and abundant love. Christ in you, our sanctification, is begun with Christ's resurrection as he provides us life in him so that we can enter into his presence and lay before him our petitions, prayers, supplications, all within the boundaries of worship and praise in Christ. It is only within the state of covenant that David can now utter his petition before the Lord. And he says this in verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness, because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Notice he says, lead me not in my righteousness, but in yours, God. David, just like us, possesses no personal righteousness. We bear God's righteousness, a righteousness that has been bestowed upon us in grace. And David asked to be led in God's righteousness because of his enemies. The cry to be led in God's righteousness is prompted by the things that David's opponents are saying and doing. Our natural response before our enemies is to defend ourselves. And in doing so, we risk becoming just like them. David, in contrast, in verse 8, seeks to live and respond with God's righteousness. And so he asks to be led. Show me, O Lord, how to be righteous before my enemies. And David completes this couplet in verse 8 by asking to be shown the right way. Make your way straight before me. This is guidance through obstacles, navigating around the presence and deceptions of our enemies, whom he describes more fully, we'll come to it, in verses 9 to 10. For now, being led involves following and knowing the straight way. Knowing God's pathway comes from spending time with the Lord in his word, in worship and in communion with him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Christ taught that one aspect of the straight way is to love our enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's from Matthew 5, 44. Now the cry to be led in God's righteousness comes as David recognizes the danger posed by God's enemies. In verse 9 to 10, David now begins to describe for us these enemies, and in doing so, he calls for God's justice. So in verse 9, he says, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. It is important to be able to recognize an enemy. This may sound strange, but enemies are not always so obvious. 
They may appear as friends. They may appear to honor God. They may even look good, safe, harmless. But God can give us discernment as he was doing with David. So in verses 9 to 10, David is recognizing the enemy who rebels against the Lord. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Notice the weapons that are used. They are lies and deceit. The issue of inner destruction, inner self-destruction, these are deceptions that come from within the heart of people so that they become destruction and also instruments for destruction. Now I want to remember um, what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, 23, when Peter spoke against the impending death of Christ. This is really tough. This is a tough one because Jesus loved Peter. In verse 23 of Matthew 16, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wow, what a rebuke. At that moment, Peter had become an enemy of Christ. Now, give me some rope here. Uh, there are times when we can temporarily become an enemy. And this is a dangerous place in which to be found. When we are confronted by God through his spirit, his word, or brothers and sisters who rebuke us, we need to pay attention and repent and seek God's forgiveness and ask, like David, to be led in God's righteousness. David himself in his life became more than once an enemy of God. But in God's abundant and steadfast love, he brought David back into his presence through his mercy. So David here continues to describe his enemies, saying their throat is an open grave. They speak words of death. Literally, these, this verse means they make their tongues smooth, which is flattery, creating a, a slippery way into death. Burrell says it this way, here is painted a graphic picture of someone being enticed by their flattering speech and slipping on the smooth tongue into the grave-like throat. In light of this image, their words are enticing and tempting and not necessarily accusatory. After all, Paul quotes this verse in Romans 3.13 and applies it to everybody, where he says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. So David's enemies not only are accusing him, but more subtly seek to manipulate the righteous through temptation to depart from the ways of the Lord. So David now calls for God's justice against such persons of destruction and ruin. In one way, on one level, as a, as a king, David, he is king over God's people. David is concerned that the people do not be led astray or be destroyed by those who pray not only directly on him as king, but also who pray directly on God's people. So in verse 10, David cries out to God for justice, where he says, 
Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions and cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Now, I want to pause and just say a word about imprecations or curses um, that we find in the Psalms. It can sound strange to our ears that the Psalm writers would call for God's punishment on the wicked when we know that Jesus told us to pray for our enemies and to love our neighbors. Well, if you look at these, they're not really curses, but rather they're appeals to God to bring justice and defend his glory and protect his people. All of us are aware of various atrocities and persecutions upon our brothers and sisters in the faith, as well as the needless suffering imposed by evil people and governments. When I read or, or hear of such suffering, it bothers me. And I must confess that there are times when I want the evil to suffer swift judgment for the harm that they inflict, not only on God's people, but also on people in general. At those times, it is right to call for God's intervention, not as vengeance, but as justice. A justice that is in accordance with God's timetable, not mine, not ours. We see this in Revelation 6, 9 to 11, where John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Justice would come, but it would come on God's timetable. So here David is doing nothing more than that. He's saying, God, make them bear their guilt. He says, let them fall by their own counsels. This means falling by their own words, deceits, and lies, becoming victims of their own fake news. Divine oversight sees that evil recoils upon its perpetrators. The reason for judgment in the second half of verse 10 is because of the abundance of their transgressions. The abundance of their transgressions. Compare that with verse 7, where we are accepted by the abundance of God's steadfast love, which leads entrance into God's very presence. Now in verse 10, the abundance of sin leads to judgment and banishment from God's presence. So that the foundational transgression is rebellion against God. The enemies are aware of God's pathway and requirements, but they choose to reject God and go further by enticing others to reject God and impugn and malign those who follow God. David's cry for justice is for God to cast them out, not only from God's presence, but also to blunt, to stop their attacks on David and God's people. So David, in his need, has reached out to God. He recounts what God accepts, who God accepts through mercy. David has prayed for guidance in the midst of his enemies, where he described in verse 9 to 10 by calling for justice. 
Now he completes Psalm 5 with rejoicing in the assurance of hope. There remains hope even for those enemies described in verses 4 to 6 and verses 9 to 10. It is the abundant grace of God. Verse 11 reads, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a child. Those who take refuge in the Lord rejoice. To take refuge is to seek God's protection and care, to rely, to depend, to trust him, to keep you safe. Now there is still hope for the wicked and the unjust if only they abandon themselves and seek refuge with the Lord. Rejoice is, now notice this, rejoice is an emotion and a feeling, an inner joy. Compared to verse 1 where David was groaning and crying, and now in verse 11 it's joy. Rejoicing is also a song, it's an outer expression of joy with words and voices. Those who take refuge receive God's protection. David says, Lord, spread your protection over them like a covering. As a child who hides under the blankets in a thunderstorm, we should get under God's blanket. Or the picture of a small bird hiding under the cleft of a rock during a, a violent storm as it seeks shelter and protection. Those that love your name may and will exult in you. Love is an emotion. We have joy and exaltation in the name of God, in the very person of God. And we exult in him with our exaltation, emotion, and words, and praise. And we come to the last verse. For you, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. The Lord blesses those that he makes righteous with his favor. Rendered righteousness comes by his abundant steadfast love. And we know that this has been fulfilled and completed in and through Jesus Christ. Who is the one, as David says, covers those who seek refuge with the Lord with favor as with a, with, with a shield. The Lord covers the righteous with favor described as a shield. There is thou, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For we have passed out of judgment of death into life in Christ Jesus. So Psalm 5 addresses those times when we find ourselves facing verbal abuse for our faith, or when others are attempting to deceive us with distortions of the gospel, or in some cases perhaps even worse, when we see attempts to harm our fellow believers who are suffering or to take advantage of the innocent and those unaware of the enemy's ways. When we encounter such situations, our reactions are to do this. Reach out to the Lord. Receive the Lord's grace. Request the Lord's guidance. Recognize the enemy who rebels against the Lord. And rejoice in refuge and assurance of his loving care. Now, we know that the Psalms form the lyrics to songs of worship. They fill the need for God's people to express their words, emotions, and thoughts in song and in poetry. Many times 
when we are faced with struggles and situations, fears and feelings of outrage, when we see injustices, when we see injustice in this world caused by people hurting others, words and logic do not seem to be enough. Our response to life can be deeper than mere words can express. And if you have suffered with pain and loss or witnessed such in others, then you know what I mean. As we close, I want to do something different with you this morning. I'm not going to set Psalm 5 to music, so don't worry about that. But I am going to set Psalm 5 to movement, which I'm calling the prayer posture of Psalm 5. And here's the first movement, head downward. The psalmist begins with head turned downward in verses 1 to 3. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Hear my cry. I'm praying to you. I'm seeking you. I'm going to sacrifice to you. I'm going to wait and watch. So in response to the needs for God to hear and answer, we have our heads down and then we move to our knees. That's what David does. Where he recounts that no one can come before God unless God himself permits them through his grace. He reflects and acknowledges the requirements of God are beyond him or beyond me or beyond any of us. Only good can dwell in God and draw near to God. And repentance over not meeting God's holy and perfect standard is what's required. So we cast ourselves before God on our knees. And then like David, after a head turning down and falling to our knees, we bow in worship and petition as we acknowledge that it is his abundant steadfast love through which we can enter into his presence. And David says, I bow down towards your holy temple in fear of you. So on our knees, bowing before God, we reflect God's abundant love demonstrated in the gospel of Christ. And in Christ, we're able to enter into God's presence in reverence and worship worshiping at the very feet of Jesus and bowing in adoration and submission and being prayed and praying to be led in his righteousness. In this position of humility, we can then sit back and reflect, reflecting on the need for God's justice in the midst of the enemies who are hurting people around them and in a, a broken and sinful world. As if it reflects and says, there are no one who has truth in their mouth. The enemy is a liar. They deceive. Make them bear their guilt, O oh God. So in this posture of, of sitting before the Lord, we call upon God's justice on unjust people, calling for their salvation, that God's mercy may too lead them from being an enemy to being a child of God. Then we can rise back to our feet. And we can say to God, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. Because we take refuge in him, he lifts us up and protects us. This leads us into rejoicing and singing. And then finally, we can turn our head upward with open palms to receive God's blessing. For verse 12 says, for you bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. We are covered 
with his favor and his blessing like a shield. And so we are led to praise and worship our King and our God. If you are in this situation of stress and struggling and groaning, put your head down, call upon his name. If you're physically able, fall upon your knees and bow before him. And then feel his touch upon your, your head and your shoulders as he lifts you up. And you can turn your head towards the heavens and give praise to him. Let us pray. Blessed Christ, you are greater than our fears and needs and failures. Blessed be Christ who is the Father's justice and love. And blessed be Christ who alone brings us into the Father's presence and fills our hearts with healing, joy, and worship. Come, let us ever bow before Christ, our Redeemer in love. Amen.